Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 9th, 2019, and this is show number 735. Well, this is going to be an action-packed show. I'm going to start with a story I totally forgot to include in the podcast last week, and that was my promised how to get your Tesla repaired after an accident bit. I had it in the show notes last week, and an alert listener, I'm so bummed I can't remember who it was, told me that I forgot to include it. Well, then I want to tell you about the AltConf Steve and I attended, which is held during WWDC. And in my conversation about it, I'm going to try to convince you that you should go next year. Well, at AltConf, we watched the WWDC keynote, and I'll give you some observations from that. I've sorted them into what got the most applause from developers that were in the room with us, what really tickled me, and what made me go, hmm. Anyway, then we'll take a break from listening to me, and we'll have an interview with Chris Chapman, Senior VP of Mac Stadium, telling us about their cool service. I'll be back after that to tell you about a second presentation we attended, the WWDC State of the Union, that's targeted more at developers than press and mainstreamed humans. This week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, I've got a super fun interview with Slovenian tech podcaster and radio guy, Onje, I'll get it right, Onje Tomik. No, Tomik. Anyway, you'll hear him make fun of me trying to say his name. Anyway, Anje is really funny. He's got a great voice. He's got a tech perspective that's way different than mine. And he's got knowledge about a whole world I don't know. That makes for a fun interview. You can listen to this interview in your podcatcher of choice under the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed or in the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed. Or, of course, you can listen over at podfeed.com where you'll find links to all of Anje's online presence. Go check it out. I promise you will find him as engaging as I did. If you managed to make it to the end of the show two weeks ago, you would have heard me say that my next installment of my Tesla Tech series would be on how to get body work done on a Model 3 when someone rear-ends you when your car is two weeks old. Yeah, that happened. Steve and I were at a stoplight and the woman behind me was stopped. There was a line of cars also stopped to the right of us where their drivers were waiting to turn right. They got the opportunity to go and started to move and the woman behind me did the thing that we've all done before, where we realize we weren't paying attention and we start to go because someone else does. I can totally see myself doing exactly what she did. Turns out this was the third time in 14 months that Steve and I have been rear-ended. And you know what? It's getting quite tiresome. The last time it happened was a hit and run, and we helped catch the guy and he was convicted of felony hit and run, so at least that part was fun. Anyway, when this happened, Steve immediately took pictures with his phone of the woman behind us and her license plate before we moved off to a safe location to exchange information. Not that we were paranoid now at all. Anyway, she felt awful about it, and I will kick myself forever for the first thing I said to her, which was, it's two weeks old. You know, like she needed to hear that. She was having a bad day. And, you know, I had paper plates, so she probably figured out that uh, it was, and it was just me to me to rub salt in that wound. Anyway, she has insurance, so her company paid for all of the repairs, but it was still very sad to see my new baby with a scratched up bumper. Now, I don't want this to be about all the sadness, but I did have a few tech things to share that we learned about the car. First of all, you'll run into trouble if you just tootle into the first collision repair shop you find, or even your favorite repair shop. It's likely it won't be a good experience. Since we've been rear-ended multiple times, we have a place we finally found that does good body work and without wrecking something else previously undamaged on the car. We've had a lot of bad places that'll do that for you. 
Well, Tesla has a support page on Body Shop Support where they tell you where the authorized Tesla repair, repair places are in your area. Tesla has their own shops, but the closest one to us is in San Jose, which is like a five-hour drive from here, but they had several local shops that they authorized as well. Steve wrote to Tesla on their support address, bodyshopsupport at tesla.com, if you need to know it. Hopefully you never will. Anyway, he asked them if we could use our own repair shop. They said, sure. But then they went on to explain that you'll wait a very long time for parts as they send the first parts to their certified shops. Well, okay then, we'll go to a Tesla-approved body shop. Our little friend Jerry, eh, he didn't always stay my little friend. I'm just going to call him Jerry at the repair place we chose, offered to give us a tour to see all of the Teslas being repaired. I don't want to diminish what Battlefield is like, but for someone who really likes cars, it felt like touring a Battlefield hospital without all the actual blood and dying people. They had 39 Teslas in various states of agonizing post-accident disrepair. But the good news is Jerry enjoyed the heck out of showing us stuff about the Tesla models and how different they are in some cases from what I'll call normal cars. I knew, for example, that there's a giant battery on all Teslas, and I knew it was all across under the car. It's really obvious when you take a sharp turn in one of these cars because these cars simply do not tilt. With the center of gravity well below your body, I don't know that these cars are even capable of flipping over without a great deal of external provocation. But even knowing this, it was crazy to see a Tesla battery just sitting out on a table. I put a picture of it in the show notes. The one we saw was for a Model X, that's the large SUV, and it was gigantic. As cool as that was, there was another Model X up on a lift and we could walk under the car and see the battery in place. Basically underneath on a Tesla is just a giant aluminum panel interrupted by a couple of other parts. It simply has three long brackets going the length of the battery and that's it. Like I said, you can know that, that this is what's under there, but it's something else to see how different an electric vehicle is from other cars. I know some cars are smooth underneath, but I, none of the cars I've ever owned have looked like that. Now, we're so nerdy that I excitedly took a picture of the special scissors lift they had to buy from Tesla just to lower the battery out from under the car and the Tesla jig they slide the vehicles down onto in order to check the alignment. Well, that's what happens when engineers go to a body shop. Well, when we gave the car up to Jerry for repair, he showed us a really cool feature of the car called service mode. On the 15-inch screen that controls absolutely everything in the car, there's a Tesla logo. If you tap and hold on the logo for 10 seconds, you get the option to type in a secret password, and the car goes into what they call service mode. I haven't been able to get any documentation on exactly what happens when the car is in service mode, other than the fact that I can no longer see it on my phone, which was kind of disturbing. But my little friend Jerry, well, Jerry, did say that the car can only go seven miles per hour while in service mode. I thought that was pretty cool. While the Model 3 is riddled with cameras, the bumper itself contains six ultrasonic sensors, six on the front and six on the back. Jerry explained that the removal of the bumper for the bodywork would require them to disconnect the sensors, so part of their job is to recalibrate the sensors. I think a lot of cars have those kind of sensors on it now, but, uh, you know, I was always wondering, what would a self-driving car do if it had been in an accident not repaired? Like, imagine it's your front bumper, and all of a sudden the car goes, whoa, there's something in front of me, but it's actually a bridge you're going under, and it slams on the brakes. I mean, that would be a bad thing. So I think you have to get these cars repaired, even if you have a fender bender. So... um Anyway, my car is now back and uh, and complete, and I was I was a little annoyed because when we went to pick up the car, I discovered that it had um, 
had a, a spot in it that was, um, it kind of looked like wax, but maybe just a little bit of, um, it was like whitish yellow. And I went to kind of chip it off my, my fingernail and it didn't come off. And Jerry went to do it and he goes, oh, it's just wax. But wax chips right off. I know wax. I wax cars. I know what wax acts like, acts like and that didn't act like it. So he said, oh, okay, well, we'll just wipe the car down. He, by the way, he had told me it was going to be wiped down. It was not. So anyway, they take the car away. They bring it back and he's all proud of it. And I look and now there's a gouge where they dug that little thing out of the paint. And while I was looking at it, I discovered another one. So Jerry goes, he gets the manager. The manager comes over and he says, oh, well, you know, all paint jobs are perfect. And I said, yeah, but Jerry told me it would be perfect. Those are his exact words. So we started arguing about what perfect meant. And then the manager, finally, I said to the manager, I said, do you think this is acceptable? And he said, no, I do not. I said, then we don't need to argue about what perfect means. Anyway, the bottom line is the next day I got my car back. But I got to tell you, let's, let's review this car. I had owned the car for 27 days. 12 of those, I got to drive it happily and undamaged. Four of those days, the bumper was ruined, and 11 of those days, it was in the body shop, and three of those days, I couldn't drive it because we were waiting to get the new wheels put on. So that's not a real high percentage of time to get to drive the car, but I am now enjoying my new Tesla, and it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I didn't put it in the show notes, but I do have a uh, a diagram that I put, or a, a photo that I took of the... Um, of the prices of what it costs to repair a uh, a Tesla in the body shop where we were, it, it's not. Um, it's amazing how much more expensive it actually is to do the uh, to do the repairs. Let's see. I sent it to Kevin a few minutes ago. Um, paint and body repair on a regular car is fifty eight dollars per hour. On a Tesla, it's one hundred and fifteen dollars per hour. So it's pushing pushing twice as much. Uh, frame straightening. 85 bucks per hour on a regular car, $115 on uh, on a Tesla. Anyway, the good news is the aluminum labor costs are exactly the same. Uh anyway, I, I won't go through all the prices. Those were the uh the most uh the biggest differences that I saw. But anyway, I have my baby back now and I will hopefully be back with more Tesla tech tips that don't have anything to do with car repair. Getting into Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference is really hard. First of all, there's a lottery system to be even allowed to get a ticket. If you're lucky, you've earned the joy of paying $1,600 to attend the event. Of course, if you're a developer, this is a unique and invaluable opportunity to attend hands-on labs where you can talk directly to the engineers at Apple about those things that give you fits with their particular products. But what if you're unlucky or just can't justify $1,600 or aren't actually a developer, but you want to hang out with really interesting developers anyway. The answer is called AltConf, or Alternative Conference. AltConf is what Gene McDonald dubbed WWDC adjacent. AltConf was in the Marriott Hotel in San Jose this year that is literally connected to the San Jose Convention Center where WWDC is held. There's also AltConfs in Berlin, Paris, Madrid, and London. Now, these were only one day, but hey, that's still really cool. By now, you're asking, how do you get into AllConf and how much does it cost? Get this, it's free and open to anyone who wants to attend. I do not understand how this works and why it works so well. I do know that everyone working on AllConf is a volunteer, with the exception of one single employee. Now, they do get a lot of sponsors to help out, which is a great way to fund things, but how do they even get all those great sponsors? Well, they do also allow you to pay for a ticket if you want to. 
I know that sounds kind of bananas, but it actually works. You can pay $50 or a price of your choosing and be in the category of I love AltConf. Or you can be a hero level sponsor for $350 and you get a guaranteed seat for the keynote and a t-shirt. Turns out there's plenty of seating for the keynote, so the guaranteed seat isn't that big of a deal. I chose for Steve and me to be heroes because we could afford it, and it seems like supporting something this cool was a good thing to do to help other people be able to go and have all the benefits of it. Plus, we got badges that said heroes on them and alt-conf socks. Now you're totally jealous, right? Now you're also probably thinking that a free conference must be pretty bare bones, but it wasn't. The first morning, the sponsors had breakfast burritos for everyone before the keynote and donuts after the keynote. In the afternoons, they had happy hours sponsored by the different vendors as well. But enough about snacks. They also had talks and labs scheduled throughout the week. And um, I didn't attend any of the labs. And most of the talks were on subjects far above my development skill level. But if you're a developer, then you'd be in heaven. Before I go too far into this, I do want to make one statement about AllConf, and AllConf is representative, I think, of the greater developer community. There were hardly any women at this conference. I'm a mechanical engineer. I worked in in engineering for 35 years. I am very used to being one of the few women in the room, but I have never been to anything with this low of a percentage of women at it. I mean, it's unbelievable. We were sitting with Kelly Guimont at one point and uh, we started counting the women in the room and it was half full. And I think it was maybe a 300 person room. It was maybe half full. And we had just gotten to double digits when we stopped counting when it was about half full. So, you know, it was, I mean, you're talking, if I, if I round up, I think it was 10%. It was unbelievably low. So um, I don't know why. But uh, women, come on, where are you guys? You guys should be at AltConf. Moving on. Steve and I did attend a panel discussion that was simply fascinating. It was a healthy discussion of the pros and cons of subscription pricing from the developer point of view. The panel was really impressive. They had Mark Edwards, who's the CEO of Bajango. Those are the people who make ISAP menus. Harrison Rose, the co-founder and chief customer officer of Paddle, was there. And Paddle's a company that helps developers create a pricing strategy and implement that pricing through the Paddle service. So, uh, for example, I'm I'm uh, just testing out an app called Solver, S-O-U-L-V-E-R. Anyway, um, when I got my receipt, it was from Paddle. So that's kind of their business. Max Seelman was there, co-founder of Ulysses, which is a great writing app. Alexander Kosovan, the CEO of MacPaw, was there. They're the ones who created SetApp, which is a mini app store where you pay 10 bucks a month to have access to all of SetApp's applications. Finally, Denis Jadonov from Riedel, makers of SparkMail and other apps, was also there. The discussion was fascinating because their points of view were all over the map. No two of them had the same perspective. Mark Edwards of Bajango says they will never do a subscription service because, and I'm quoting here, We want our users to like us. Well, that spawned a whole discussion about how users feel about subscriptions. Mark did say that if you have a significant recurring cost to maintain a service, you pretty much have to have a subscription. For example, inside iStep menus, they have a module where you can have weather in their menu bar app. But if you choose to use it, Django has to pay the weather service for that access. So inside iStep menus, which is not subscription-based, you can opt into weather as a subscription if you so choose. Ulysses Max Steelman had a completely different perspective. He said that their decision to go subscription pricing was excellent for them and that he would never go back. 
He said that when they instituted the subscription service, they immediately lost all of their casual users. And that was just fine. He explained that Ulysses is a professional writing app, and the professionals actually responded by thanking them. They said they didn't want to hang their careers on a tool that wouldn't be around for the long haul. As a result, the company's revenues have been growing 30 to 40% per year, where before subscription pricing, they had very sporadic growth. Now, there was one thing everyone on the panel agreed about. If you change your pricing model, go up, go down, go this way, go that way, whatever you do, if you change it, people will hate it. You will get hate mail. Now, I think the most interesting thing I realized listening to these people discuss pricing was that developers have a lot of flexibility. For example, Bajango sells iStep menus on their own website, but they also sell it through the Mac App Store, and they also sell it through SetApp. So in a way, iStep Menus is available on a subscription basis. Anyway, I did an entirely separate interview with the CEO of SetApp because I'm fascinated by everything they're doing, and Alexander himself is a fascinating guy. You'll hear that at a later date. Now, one of my favorite things about conferences is the new people I meet and the old friends I get to meet again. We went to a party called SJ Mac Indy and met a ton of interesting people. Oddly, almost all of them were German. I don't I actually understand. I mean, it was it, it actually got comical because everybody was German. We talked for a long time, for example, to two competitors, one guy from Mercedes and one from BMW, both of whom were working on CarPlay. And they were trying to be friends, but they were kind of dancing around what they could say to each other. So that was pretty interesting. Before we got to AllConf, I tweeted out to Daniel Jalcut, author of my favorite blogging software I've told you about a million times, MarsEdit, asking, is there any chance you're going to be at the show? He didn't write back. But instead, he just walked up and tapped me on the shoulder at the SJ Mac Indy party. I have to say, it was really fun to meet one of my heroes and hang out with him. At parties like this, I enjoy walking up to people who look fun, but who aren't talking to anyone. I saw this guy looking at his phone, and I walked up and I said, hi. And he turned to me and he immediately said, and I quote, with an ever so slight Macintosh bias. It turned out to be Jens Jung, who goes by the name Bitstream on social media. And guess what? He's actually in our Podfeet Slack. He had even, uh, he said he thought he wrote me a message. I never got it though, saying, hey, I'm going to be at WWDC. Maybe we could meet up. But I picked, I mean, there were like 400 people at this party and I walked up to someone who was actually hoping to meet me. So that was super fun. And I got to tell you, Jens was hilarious. At the same party, we hooked up with our good friend, Jean McDonald. I mentioned her at the beginning. You might have heard of her. She was formerly with Smile and she's now with Micro.blog. We've known Jean for ages and ages and hung out with her a lot over the few days. Uh, we did hang out with her this time a lot over the few days we're in San Jose. The three of us closed up the Mac Indy party, and uh, and so was, uh, Daniel was there and a few other people. And Daniel suggested that we go meet up at a new place. A big group of us just tootled down the streets of San Jose. While the tootling did not result in finding a place to hang out, we did run into a friend of Jean's, Craig Hockenberry. You may know that name. He's the Icon Factory guy. I have to say, he was absolutely lovely. After failing to find any fun place downtown, Gene, Steve, and I wandered back to the Marriott and inexplicably ended up at a place called the Tank Bar, spelled with a Q. You know, like Tank Array. Anyway, this turned out to be fortuitous because we got to meet yet another friend of Gene's because she knows everybody. Ken Case, CEO of the Omni Group, wandered up and joined us. Ken is such a sweet, unassuming man. I adored him. 
While we were chatting, this other guy came up. I forgot his name, but of course she knew who he was too. Anyway, this guy let us know that Ken went to college when he was only 14 years old. Well, a few days later, we ran into Ken again, and I asked him, like, seriously, you went to college when you're 14 years old? And he told us the whole amazing story just standing in the lobby. After he was done, I asked him if he'd come on Chit Chat Across the Pond to tell it again, and he said yes. He's kind of shy. He said it almost like, oh, do I have to? Anyway, I hope he really meant it, and I hope he will come on the show. Well, at MaxDoc a few years ago, we met up with Marina Eppelman, who's a professor from the University of Michigan. We hit it off right away. She's funny and brilliant and sarcastic, just my kind of people. Turns out she was working as a volunteer at AltConf, so we got to see her again. Good thing, since she's got a conflict with MaxDoc this year. Oh, we also did meet up with Kelly Guimont. I mentioned uh, her earlier. You might know her from her work at Smile and Mac Observer. Oh, and speaking of Mac Observer, we got to see Dave Hamilton, too. Oh, and that, that hack Chuck Joyner from Mac Voices, he was hanging around a lot, too. We had a lovely dinner, a uh, Greek dinner with Greg Scount, CEO of Smile. He picked everything out for us and, and uh, great, great recommendations. And also Maya Olson from Marketing and Customer Experience at Smile. Do you know how I know them? Gene introduced them to me many years ago. I'm going to put it right out there. The very first thing I said to Greg and Maya when we had dinner was, so how awesome was my text expander video? Luckily, they both said, so awesome. I'm sure they didn't feel at all pressured to say that. Well, I ran into Sal Segoyan again, and he was just as sweet and unassuming as ever. I told him I've continued on my automation journey ever since his Command D conference. He said, good, because you seem to have a lot of energy. Maybe that's irritating. I don't know. Anyway, we chatted a bit about JavaScript, and he said something that made me so happy. He said, I don't really understand a lot of this stuff, and I don't get the jargon, but I know how to use it. Got to tell you, that delighted me, because I struggle sometimes with the jargon, but I can get a lot of this stuff to work, so I felt a little better about that. He also mentioned how annoying he finds it when people use one-character names for variables. He said, and I quote, I will name an array something like, array of everything on my desktop. I love Sal. Sometimes you meet someone and you can tell you're just going to be friends forever. I felt that way when we met Darius Dunlap. Again, I started talking to this random stranger. I mean, just walked up to somebody who wasn't talking to anybody and said hi. And guess what? Yep, he and Gene have been friends for more than 20 years. Anyway, Darius is a Nocella castaway at heart. He just didn't know it yet. While we were talking, he says, look at my cool new toy. And he pulled out a Rode Wireless Go. It's two small boxes, one of which is a replacement for a lavalier mic and the other one's a receiver. As he was explaining why it was so cool with great enthusiasm, I explained to him that he will be doing a review for the podcast about it. And he agreed. See what I mean? He's already a Nocilla castaway in his bones. He can't help himself. Another chance encounter who oddly did not know Gene... You know, I didn't technically ask him if he knew Gene. Anyway, his name is Paul Garaki. I don't know what we're going to do together, but he's also a crazy Apple geek, so we'll do something fun at some point in the future. All right, here's a really good reason to go to AllConf. You can get your picture taken with Dave. I don't know who Dave is, but the thing is, you get your picture taken with Dave. That's, that's basically what you do. You get your picture taken with him, and you use the hashtag PicsWithDave. They had a full-size cardboard cutout of Dave so you could pose with him. So Steve did it, and he posted with the hashtag PicsWithDave. But wait, it gets more exciting than taking a picture with a cardboard person. The real Dave showed up at AllConf. So Steve posed 
with the real Dave in front of the cardboard Dave while holding his iPhone showing the picture of him with the cardboard Dave. It was epic. Nobody at WWDC could have done that. That was only at AltConf. Well, another fun thing you could do when you're at AltConf or at WWDC, which is, of course, not as cool as getting your pick with Dave, uh, is you can attend some big-name podcast live shows. John Gerber does the talk show live, which we did not attend, but we did attend the Accidental Tech Podcast show, and it was awesome. If you haven't subscribed to it, I can highly recommend it. Stephen Getz turned me on to the uh, to the ATP guys, so I went to the show just so Stephen could live vicariously through me. Marco Arment, Casey Liss, and John Syracuse were hilarious. Now, I really wanted to see ATP in person because I had no idea what they looked like, and I had trouble telling which voice was Casey's and which one was Marco. John's voice is unconfusable, but uh, now I know the other two as well. I have to say, I think my favorite part was the end of the show when they played the theme song and the sold-out 900-person theater sang along. It was a beautiful thing. I loved it. I thought I was the only one who sang along with the theme song. I loved it so much, I'm going to play it for you because I recorded it and it makes me so happy. I don't know why that makes me so happy, but when they said USA, uh, John Syracuse shook his arm in the air with victory. It was it was a lot of fun. Anyway, the very last night we were at AltConf, we had Gene over to our hotel room for what we have collectively always called our slumber party near the end of an event. What we do is Gene comes over and we all sit around in our PJs and we drink wine in our hotel room and we talk about how much fun we've had at whatever event we're attending. As we were goofing around, I mentioned that I was super excited that I had found a Slovenian tech podcaster to interview. And you want to know what Gene says? Oh, you mean Ajay? Yeah, I'm going to see him in Slovenia this summer. Seriously. Bottom line is, that if you can get yourself to San Jose next year, do it. Then figure out how to connect up with Gene McDonald and you will meet everyone. Or just do what I do and walk up to a stranger and say, Hi, what do you do? I'm sure by now that you've either watched the WWDC keynote yourself or read the lowdown on every single little tiny thing that Apple announced. I don't want to talk about every little thing, but rather highlight some of the information I found interesting. Like I said up front, I've categorized my observations into three categories. Things that got huge applause, things I found really cool, and things that made me go, hmm. Let's start with things that got a big reaction from the developers in the audience at AltConf. A lot of people went crazy when they said some PlayStation Xbox controller is going to work with Apple's gaming service, Arcade, when it arrives on Apple TV. People went bananas. They announced Quick Path, which is the swipe keyboard gesture for faster typing on iOS. And, you know, even though they didn't really demo it, people got very excited about that. New Maps features with the binoculars got a big reaction. Specifically, people were wowed when the woman demonstrated using a street view with the binoculars, and suddenly it was like you were zooming along the street fluidly as though you were zooming along in a car. And I really liked how in that view, you could see the name of a store kind of hovering in the air up in front of the storefront and then tap on that to learn about that store. That was pretty cool. Sign in with Apple for iOS 13 was a really big hit. 
They explain that there's going to be a feature in all apps that will allow you to create a sign-in via Apple. When you use sign-in via Apple, you'll be able to choose whether or not to share your real email address with the developer. If you choose to hide your email address, the developer will instead get a unique address at privaterelay.appleid.com. The reason this is important is this will allow you to shut just that one down selectively if the developer bothers you. And I, th- I thought this was especially important because with the um, with the App Store on iOS, developers don't ever get to know anything about their their uh, their clients, right? They do, they don't get to know their customers, and they don't get any way to communicate with us. Now, with with this uh, sign in with Apple thing, they could get information to us. They could get to quote unquote know us, but if they abuse us. We can shut them off. So I think they might have hit a much happier point between uh, between the two worlds. So I think that's one of the reasons the developers were excited. In the explanation of enhancements to photos, they talked about a bunch of new adjustments they've added on iOS, but they didn't really go into it. It didn't get much of an excitement. And they talked about how the UI has been redesigned, but that didn't get much reaction either. But then they said you will be able to apply these adjustments to videos, which is very cool. But I got to tell you, the thing that people were most excited about was they said you'll be able to rotate a video inside photos. Finally. Well, the Files app got some some real love. I was excited about a column view. Small things make me happy. But the big money maker with the crowd was when they said you can use SMB file sharing to get to a local server and you can plug in USB drives and SD cards and see them in the Files app. I think I can remember people asking for this as far back as the existence of iPhone. Now, for many of us, we've just been annoyed by the lack of USB and SD card support for iOS because a lot of us want to bring in images to an iPad or iPhone, but we don't want to import them into Apple's Photos app. But there's a group of people who had a more critical problem. I'm not sure how widespread this problem has been, but it has affected the blind community in a way I didn't realize. A company called Orbit Research tweeted about their Braille display called the Reader 20. They explained that in the past, users would have to use a Windows PC to upgrade the firmware of the Reader 20, but now they'll be able to do it directly on their iPad using an SD card. I don't know why this wasn't ever possible with a Mac, but still, this is great news. The single thing that got the most applause from the developers at AltConf was the voice control video and demonstration. This is a new capability that will be built into macOS Catalina, which will allow those with mobility impairments to move the uh, the cursor around on screen and make selections and type all via voice. I think the reaction of the audience was because uh, adding accessibility to development projects is a lot of work and in some cases is very difficult. Having a framework that makes this easier can only be a good thing for everyone, and it definitely made the developers happy. In case you hadn't heard, Nuance, the authors of Dragon Dictate, announced a few months ago that they were no longer going to support the Mac, which was devastating to many. It seems easy to infer that Apple's enhancement in this uh, advancement, I should say, in this space made the business model untenable for Nuance. I also heard through the rumor mill that Apple has been recruiting Nuance engineers like crazy, so the whole thing makes sense. I'm thrilled for those who need these features to be productive. Even lacking physical disabilities, I would truly love it if dictation on the Mac was significantly better. I think it's quite ironic that dictation into my Apple Watch is the most reliable, while into the iPhone is slightly worse and macOS brings up the rear in terms of accuracy. Can't explain that, but it has been true, so hopefully this will get better in macOS Catalina. Now, let's go to things I thought were cool. I know I was supposed to be talking about the developers. 
I was excited that they have decibel level on the watch to tell you if your environment is too loud. I've wanted to be able to easily measure and characterize sound level for a while. At our gym, we have the spin cycle room right next to the changing room, and they would often leave the door open in the uh, cycle room. I wanted to be able to hold up a device and point to a screen saying, it's too loud. I know I sound a little bit like, get off my lawn, but that's how I feel. In any case, when they described the loud environment warning, they made a point that the device does not record or save the audio it's measuring around you. Cycle tracking for women seems to have been a big missing feature, so it's pretty cool they finally brought it. They might have Sherlocked a few apps, but still, that's a good thing. Reminders being rewritten from the ground up excites me a lot. I like reminders, but having subtasks just by itself is super useful, and I would always reach for other apps because of that. I've been looking for a good reminders app, and having it integrated for me is always better. I hope there's a lot more goodness in there. They're adding ETA to Maps. Now, I've always used a third-party app for that, like uh, I'm really fond of the app Glimpse. Sadly, it's been getting dodgier all the time, and often it simply won't send the notification to the recipient. It'd be pretty swell to have this built into Apple Maps. Glimpse is good because it's cross-platform, so you can send a glimpse to people on any platform or even not using a, a mobile device at all. They can be sitting in a web browser and see how soon you're going to be arriving at their location or the location where you're meeting them. Now, some people thought it was dumb, but I thought the enhancements to Memoji were pretty fun. They made me think uh, of some friends of mine who would definitely enjoy this. Kaylee, I'm looking at you. Anyway, the explanation of it was uh, via video of two Memoji talking to each other as they changed their hair to blue, added modern glasses, changed lipstick and eyeshadow, and even put in tongue rings. More personality means more fun. Now, they also came out with Memoji stickers, which will be awesome. Now, surprisingly, they extended the Memoji stickers down to any device running an A9 or higher processor. And I think that's going to be that's going to be really fun for people to be able to have those stickers at all different levels. Now, I inferred from the announcement that HomePod will be able to recognize different voices when they said that, that we'll be able to have more than one Apple ID attached to our HomePod. They didn't exactly say that, but I'm hopeful. The enhancements to the newly named iPad OS look like they took another big step forward in making the operating system function more like a desktop machine. They demonstrated having two notes files open side by side and more notes files open in split view with other applications, and then they showed do using Expose to see the open notes files. That was really cool, and I actually needed it during the keynote because I took all my notes from the keynote in notes, and then I wanted to write them up, and I had to use a second app to do it side by side. I would have done the full write-up in notes if I could have done it side by side. Well, iPadOS will now serve up desktop websites instead of mobile sites. I presume they've changed the user agent in order to cause this. On a 12.9-inch iPad Pro, that makes sense, and it still makes sense on the 11-inch iPad Pro and maybe even the 9.7-inch iPad, but it'll be very interesting to see how that works out for the iPad Mini. Now, owning an Apple Pencil makes you search for excuses to use it. Marking up documents is one of the most obvious things people want to do. But to do this on anything that isn't already a PDF, you have to first hit the appropriate button to go to print the thing you're looking at. Then there's a secret hand gesture. If you pinch out on the screen, it will bring the document to full screen. After you do that, you can use the share button to send it to another app as a PDF where then you can mark it up. Again, secret hand gestures. That's, that's really discoverable. 
Now, though, in uh, iPad OS, you're going to be able to simply swipe up from the corner of the screen with pencil and start marking it up. This is exactly what you would hope it could do. I really enjoyed Craig Frederick's presentation of the breakup of iTunes. He was hilarious because he said, we've heard your request. We know overwhelmingly you want us to put more things into iTunes. So he showed mock-ups of iTunes now containing calendar and photos and all these other things. He really leaned into everything that was wrong with iTunes. Now, you know, I love there being a dedicated podcast app from Apple and Mac OS. That can only be good. Now, according to Jason Snell on Six Colors, the podcast app is written in Catalyst, which is the port things from the uh, from iOS over to the Mac uh, software. That means, um, oh, but th- that could be a good thing, but I was figuring it would look really janky because of that. But Jason said it was indistinguishable from a native Mac app. In the keynote, they showed you how if you plug your phone in now, instead of launching iTunes or any other app automatically, which drives all of us bonkers, you will just see your iPhone attached as a device in the Finder. Actually, Craig said, watch what happens when we plug in a phone. Nothing. And everybody got all excited. Anyway, when you select it in the devices section, you'll see the familiar screen showing you how to sync your content. And I think that's fantastic. Now, you know, I'm a big fan of Luna Display, the little hardware dongle that lets you use an iPad as a secondary display or even a primary display for a headless Mac mini. I like it enough that I agreed to go to a happy hour sponsored by the Luna Display people in Los Angeles. The happy hour just happened to be a day or two after the rumors started to fly about Apple coming out with a competing technology called Sidecar. I asked the CEO, the founder, and the chief technology officer what they thought about this, and they expressed hope that the implementation by Apple would be a limited version of what they can do, and thereby helping to increase the overall market by letting people know this type of technology exists. Well, the rumors came true and Apple did announce Sidecar. They didn't give a lot of detail on how this would work, but they did say you'd be able to use your tablet both wired or wirelessly to mirror or extend the desktop of your Mac. I wrote a quote down that they said. They said, works across all apps that support tablets. I wrote a bunch of question marks in my notes after it, wondering what the heck that means. Now, it might work better than other solutions like Luna Display because Apple has access at a lower level to the hardware, but the um, uh, the Luna Display allows you to use the iPad very distant from your Mac, as long as it's on the same Wi-Fi network. So you can set up a headless Mac Mini, for example, with a Luna Display in it and use your iPad as a display, and you have the best of both worlds. And I don't think you'll be able to do that with Sidecar. Now, on Apple's page all about macOS Catalina, as pointed out by Stephen Getz, it does say, Bring the ease and precision of Apple Pencil to your favorite creative Mac apps with Sidecar. Use Apple Pencil to design an Illustrator, edit photos in Affinity Photo, or create 3D models in ZBrush. I love to see my favorite Affinity Photo up in lights like that. Didn't say uh, Photoshop, now did it? Did say Illustrator, though. By the way, there was a footnote next to Sidecar in that sentence which said, some gestures require Sidecar to enable apps. So it might not be as seamless as Luna's display until the apps get up to speed. Apple announced that there's no longer Find My iPhone and Find Friends. They've been combined into simply Find My. I think that's an unfinished statement, but they didn't ask me before they named it. Anyway, that wasn't the cool part I wanted to highlight. The new thing I got excited about was that Find My would find your Mac even when it's offline. They explained that the Mac sends out a secure beacon that other phones and devices can see, and then somehow Apple can geolocate the device from that information. Not sure how these devices get roped into helping, though. 
That seems kind of weird. Anyway, if that works, it would be awesome. Finally, in the category of things that made me go, hmm, there was a lot of focus on Apple Watch apps. In general, I've not found pretty much any of them to be compelling at all. So this seemed curious that there was such a big focus. The big announcement was they're going to allow independent apps, meaning they won't require an iPhone app to function or be installed, and you're going to have the App Store on the Apple Watch. It seems really bizarre to me. I cannot picture that on the small screen. They said that with iOS 13, app downloads from the App Store would be 50% smaller and upgrades would be 60% smaller. I would like to know what kind of sorcery they're performing that would cause this. Perhaps the framework in which apps are held by Apple were hugely inefficient. But to cut the size in half, the extras would have had to have been more than one times the size of the apps themselves. Seems curious. Made me go, hmm. Well, they talked about a new method of selecting text on iPad OS. They said you'd be able to simply drag across a sentence and it would select. They were very excited you would no longer see the magnifying glass when you were trying to get your finger to just the right spot on the text. They described a uh, three-fingered pinch to copy, three-fingered zoom out to paste, three-fingered swipe left to undo, no more shaking an iPad, and three-fingered swipe to the right to redo. Sounds really complicated and difficult to remember and execute to me. In the demo, the poor guy had a terrible time getting it to work, and more than once he said, oops, let me try that again. He lost the entire game for me there, because that's exactly what we're trying to get away from. The three-fingered left and three-finger right for undo and redo... That might be good, but I'll have to use that selection technique before I'll believe it's any good. Bottom line, it was great fun to see and hear the keynote in the company of so many developers, and it really helped me to gauge the reaction of that community. Every month when I get a payout from Patreon, I think very fondly of those fantastic Nocilla castaways who pledge their hard-earned money to help support the show. Interestingly, the vast majority of them are people I never met before Patreon. They quietly and politely listen and then help monetarily. Actually, I assume they're quiet, but they could be just like the rest of us, be yelling into the devices while listening. But they don't write to me about it. If you've been listening for a while and you'd like to show that you find value in the content created at the Podfeet Podcast Empire, please consider going to podfeet.com slash Patreon to help monetarily. You can designate a per show and or a per month max to contribute so you can control your own finances. I only try to charge the patrons for the NoSillaCast so you get chit-chat across the pond light and programming by stealth for free. Actually, at the end of every programming by stealth, I do ask you to go push Bart's Patreon buttons instead. Thank you, thank you to all of you who continue to contribute to help the show. Okay, that was funny just now. Frank over in the live chat room just wrote, Pledge break! And uh, Rick said, Operator standing by. Anyway, uh, you know what? I've been looking at the clock here, and I don't think we have time for the Max Stadium interview. After all, we are going to do that next week because I want to talk to you about the State of the Union. The WWC, I'll get it yet, WWDC keynote was really interesting, and it's targeted towards the press and consumer. AltConf also streamed the State of the Union. I had no idea what to expect other than that it would be a quite a bit more technically oriented. I was afraid it would be way over my head, but because of programming by stealth, I think I was well-equipped to at least grasp why things were important. I thought I'd give you some highlights of what caught my attention. Apple has declared that going forward, apps submitted to the App Store will have to be adaptable to different sizes. Now, I think, and I hope, that means we won't see that stupid 2x view ever again on an iPad. I hope updates to existing apps will also have to be adaptable to all sizes too, because I want all of the 2x apps to go away. 
I have my settings such that if I buy an app on the iPhone, it will automatically download to my iPads. So I'm I'm not sure I actively did that, and I'm not even sure I like it, but I've been too lazy to track down how it happens. In any case, the result is that I'll be on the iPad and I'll see an app. I'll go, oh, wow, that app is here. Oh, yay. And I'll tap on it only to discover it's a stupid iPhone-only app. Anyway, I hope that's going to be fixed. They announced that you will now be able to add Swift packages to GitHub. I'm going to try to see if I can explain why this is cool and what it means. I'm sure I will incur the wrath of those who actually understand this, but at least I'll learn from those who correct me. In web development, the language we use is JavaScript. People write bits of code to solve a problem, and instead of hoarding that code, they often create JavaScript libraries and they post them on the service GitHub, which is now owned by Microsoft. JavaScript libraries are added to GitHub using something called the Node Packager, I'll get it yet, Node Package Manager, NPM. A developer can choose to make their packages freely downloadable, which makes the web a much cooler place than it would be otherwise. For example, just this last week, I downloaded a JavaScript library from GitHub that allows me to draw a vector graphic arc to demonstrate to the user of my web app their progress in guessing a number. When writing apps for iOS and for macOS and for iPadOS, the new hotness is Apple's Swift programming language. Developers write their Swift code inside Apple's development environment called Xcode. Apple has created the Swift Package Manager, like uh, which is just like the Node Package Manager, but it's for Swift, which now allows developers to package your Swift code and manage dependencies. This puts Swift on par with JavaScript, Java, Ruby, .NET, and Docker, and all of these languages will be available through the newly announced GitHub Package Registry. There, I hope I got that right. I did use a link from uh, github.blog that explained some of this, so I was probably close to right. Anyway, what, what I think this means is that we're going to get more libraries written by more people, sharing information, which makes everything better. In the State of the Union, Apple demonstrated writing Swift code inside the Xcode development environment, and a few things really blew my dress up. On the left side of the screen, they showed the code, and on the right half was the simulator for an iPhone. They seemed very excited to show off something they called a mini-map on the right of the code. The best analogy I can think of for you is it looked how preview looks when you're viewing a long PDF, and you can see the pages down the left-hand side. Situational awareness on where you are in the file is critical, and they, but the audience didn't seem as excited as the presenter. They showed how you can set landmarks in your code by typing slash slash mark. These landmarks are visible in the mini-map. You really want me to call it mini-me, don't you? Anyway, so you can jump right to a landmark in your code, and it helps you to be able to find places in your code more easily, which I thought was really cool. I thought the way you deal with documentation in your code was really nifty. Bart taught us way, way back a long time ago how to generate documentation by what looks kind of like comments within your code. In Swift, you do the same thing. But let's say you define two parameters in your documentation, but in the next segment of code, you actually use a third parameter. Xcode will automatically add that third parameter to your documentation, inviting you to write up the explanation. Like I said, pretty nifty. But the real moneymaker of this particular segment was when they showed that you can edit in the simulator or in the code, and both sides update automatically. That got a huge reaction from the crowd, but it went way up a notch. Next, the presenter plugged in an iPhone and pushed the code to it. Real time, they changed the code and the iPhone updated immediately with no build or push or anything. The crowd went wild. With macOS Catalina, Apple is introducing something called DriverKit. As they explained it in the past, 
Uh, some specialized hardware peripherals and some sophisticated apps needed to run their code directly within the operating system. To do this, they used kernel extensions, also known as KEXTs or KEXT, I suppose you might say. When something went wrong with a KEXT, the results could be disastrous because they operate at such a low level of the operating system. Well, with DriverKit and user space system extensions, these programs will run separately from the operating system, so they cannot affect macOS if something goes belly up with them. I suspect this is a security improvement as well. Speaking of security, apps on the Mac will now have to ask permission to see key presses and to allow screen recordings. They will have to ask permission to access both desktop and documents. Now, there were many enhancements clearly designed to make life easier for developers. One example was the creation of PencilKit. This API, which stands for Application Programming Interface, will allow developers to add drawing functionality into their apps. We all want to justify purchasing an Apple Pencil, whether we've bought one already or not, so this is great news. They showed how with PencilKit, developers will be able to allow the user to drag the drawing controls around on screen to a location of the user's choosing. Now, I'm not sure where I saw this next thing, so I'm just going to throw it in right here. They demonstrated allowing the user to pinch on the keyboard, which would cause it to shrink up and float around on screen, also to a location of the user's choosing. For an iPad mini, maybe this would help to pinch the keyboard to one side for right or left-handed typing. As I mentioned in my thoughts about the keynote, some of the biggest reactions from the audience were in accessibility. Just the fact that in iOS 13, accessibility settings are moving to the top level instead of being buried inside general settings got a huge round of applause. It made me think about when I mind mapped iOS 11 and about 30% of that chart was about accessibility. Hope they streamlined it a little bit while they're at it. Another way they said to hope to, they hope to increase discoverability was by adding accessibility to what they call Quick Start, which is their name for double-clicking the side button. Personally, I think the way they keep moving the control around reduces discoverability. Remember it was triple-click home in the old days? But then they moved it to a triple-click of the side button? Now it's double-click. Oh well. Anyway, in the keynote, they told us about voice control that would allow the user to move around on screen, dictate, and interact with elements on screen all by voice. They highlighted that voice control would know the difference between dictation and commands to control the computer. During the State of the Union, they demonstrated controlling an iPhone with voice control. The demonstrator did a lot of cool stuff. He opened maps, he zoomed in using an on-screen grid overlay, copied the location, he switched over to a message, and he pasted in the map. He dictated a bit, and it worked great. But then he said, tap send, and it took it as dictation. It took him a couple of tries to get it to accept the command rather than type it out, and it did work on the third try. He got applause when it finally worked, but I sure wish that part of the demo had been flawless. Everything is fiddly is fun to say, but it sure would be nicer if it wasn't. The guy doing the demo explained that voice control would know if you weren't actively looking at the screen and would then ignore your voice. As he was doing the demo, he would look at the audience while talking to us, and voice control did stop taking dictation. When he looked back at it and resumed talking, it would type out every word perfectly and followed his commands. I thought that was pretty interesting. Now, since it was on an iPhone, it made me wonder whether it was using the True Depth cameras built for Face ID to recognize attention. They didn't say. The speaker didn't demonstrate it much, but he did say that Xcode with the new Swift UI has tools that are super easy to implement for increasing accessibility of the apps. I hope it's as easy as he said, because that'll give us a big jump up in accessibility. 
During the keynote, Apple announced Sign In with Apple, which I talked about before, the secure way to sign into apps. In the State of the Union, they elaborated more on the new service, specifically from the developer's perspective. They explained that it was a simple API to set up in your app, which is good, which replaces your need to create a sign-in service and to track logins yourself. They answered the question, why is this good for developers? Here's the list of their answers. They said it ensures more trust by your users. There's less confusion about why you even need them to log in. It's faster for a user to decide to use your app. How many times have you bailed on an app because you have to create a login? I have a lot of times. But if it was right there, sign in with Apple, boom, I'm in, I would, I would keep going. Less friction is good. You don't have to do email verification as a developer because Apple has already verified the email address for you. Now, they said that users often create weird throwaway addresses, which cause you problems. Now, think about this. As a developer, you don't have to store passwords or do password resets. That means you reduce your liability and you don't have all the work and everything of taking care of those passwords. That's really good for developers. They said that all Apple IDs using sign-in with Apple will have to have two-factor authentication enabled so their security is maintained in your app. They also described something they call real user indicator. They said the system will use on-device information to see if it's acting as expected when a real user is interacting with a device. Of course, sign-in with Apple works on all Apple devices, but it will also work on the web so Android and Windows users will be able to use it. I haven't been able to think of a single reason why sign-in with Apple isn't going to be awesome. It's not a revolutionary idea, of course, but it could help solve a lot of problems for users and developers. And I was really glad to see that they had so many reasons it was good for developers because that means they're going to want to put it into their apps. Well, I really enjoyed the State of the Union at AltConf. In the past, I only watched the keynote, but I will definitely catch the State of the Union from now on. Well... That was enough, I think, for this week. We're going to wind things up. Uh, do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, having good starts with podfeed.com. You really want to go become a Patreon? You could go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to join the friends we have over on Facebook? Podfeed.com slash Facebook for our community there. Don't like Facebook? Want to go to Slack? We've got that too. Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join the chat room at any time during one of the uh, big events, we always hang out over in Podfeed.com slash chat. That's usually mostly for the live show. If you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.